There will be meat and milk next week, yes. I doubt anyone will be here, especially in the afternoon, but you are all welcome. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we come to you and going to embark further into the book of Revelation, and we pray your spirit will be with us to teach us all things and help us to know what to take from this book and how it applies to us in our lives today. And uh, we pray for your spirit to be with those who are uh, struggling at this time of year. Many people seem to. And we pray that we will be encouraged by and through your word as we consider it now. And we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.
We're in uh, Revelation chapter 2. This begins the chapters where the Lord addresses the seven churches. Let's read through all that the Lord has to say to the church at Ephesus. This is the first church, and we read uh, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou, thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and hast not fainted. 
Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, which thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitation, which I also hate, Lake Nicolaitanes, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So that's the content, that's the text. We're not going to be able to cover all of it, of course, today, but we'll hit probably the first few verses. So we covered unto the messenger of the church of Ephesus. We talked about who that messenger could be. And even though it says angel, that's angelos, it means a messenger of any sort. And I suggested that I think it is probably the pastor of that church. And many other Christian scholars are in agreement with that. Let's talk about Ephesus first. And maybe if we understand some about the city, we might understand the nature of the people and what was going on there. Ephesus is a celebrated city from Ionia, and it's in Asia Minor, which is about 40 miles south of Smyrna, another church that Jesus will speak to, and it's near the mouth of a river called Caster. Now, just to let you know, growing up, when I hear Asia Minor, I think of Asia as in Asian Chinese Asia, uh, but it has, doesn't really have anything to do with them directly. Asia is considered this very big area that starts, I'm just using for me, it starts over here, far, far, far east, and then goes all the way over here to Turkey. And Asia Minor is pretty much Turkey. That's it. And underneath Turkey, there is Iran and Iraq and Lebanon and Israel. And so it's just so there's Turkey, it extends out into the ocean there. And then below you have Iran, Iraq and Lebanon. And way down here, you have uh, Israel. The, Asia Minor was just the Turkey part where those seven churches were located. So going all the way, then you get to Kazakhstan and you get through all those Muslim nations, and finally you get to the Asia, Asia part that we're talking about, China, etc. So Asia Minor is just a very small place, and it's, today it's pretty much Turkey. And it was settled by Greek colonies, and apparently its climate is nice, and the people there at this time were known for uh, being refined and being of the arts and indulging in uh, sensual sins. They were all about that. We might liken it to maybe a, a San Francisco or one of the metropolis cities of our world today, maybe New Orleans. This is what uh, Ephesus was like. And history tells us that they had a number of festivals there where men and women would dress up in all sorts of uh, ways so that they could participate in debauchery. It, it had a very, very carnal side to it. And apparently it wasn't known for having very many commercial advantages, uh, unlike Smyrna, which we'll read about, but it kind of fell into ruin as a result of that. But it was more of a resort-like place. 
And because it had a, the temple of Diana or Artemis, we, so every time we say it, we don't have to think of our Diana, but the temple of Artemis and Diana are one and the same. And because it had that temple there, it was an attraction for all pagan worshipers to come visit. And when all pagan worshipers would come visit, guess what they brought with them? Money. And so Ephesus was a city that was known for having a lot of money despite it lacking commercial enterprises like the other places. Um, Pliny, the historian Pliny calls it the ornament of Asia. So uh, it, it, it was uh, very nicely done. It, it, it had a lot of money, but it didn't have much commerce. In Roman times, it was the metropolis of Asia, surpassed by none. This place was the go-to place in Roman times. And um, so an earthquake did wipe it out, and I'm gonna talk about that in a second. As I said before, it was noted for being the, uh, the place, the home of a temple of Diana, a temple of Artemis, and the power and sway of this temple is exhibited when we get to Acts 19 in our milk study, Hours on end in Acts 19, it says that the pagan worshipers chanted, for hours on end, great is the temple of Diana in Ephesus. Great is the temple of Diana in Ephesus. And that was in response to Paul. So apparently all of the provinces of Asia Minor contributed to the creation and building of this splendid temple. And the thing took apparently 200 years to create. That's how marvelous it was. Um, and uh, Artemis was an Olympus, Olympian goddess and she's the daughter of Zeus and Leto and she was the goddess of the moon and the goddess of the hunt and she's also the twin sister of Apollo. And Ephesian Artemis, there's a difference between the Ephesian temple of Artemis or temple of Diana and the standard uh, Diana and Artemis the Ephesian Artemis was known more for being tied to fertility and uh, reproduction than the goddess of the moon and of the hunt. And so Ephesian, at Ephesus, the temple was far more involved in lasciviousness than uh, anything else. The first temple built in her name, 800 BC, this is how long this tradition's gone on. 800 BC, they had built this temple and... Uh, and it was destroyed in the seventh century. Reconstruction took place 550 BC, and it was destroyed. And, but every time they rebuilt the temple, it was like the temple on Mount Moriah. There's one location for the temple of Diana, and it, they would keep building it at the same place there in Ephesus. Uh, it was so glorious that uh, Antipater of Sidon said that of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Diana was the greatest. Okay, so this gives us some idea of what's going on around um, the church that's at Ephesus. That there is a lot of, of activity, pagan activity in life, and a certain mentality that's there in this metropolis. And they have one of the great wonders of the world. All pagan activity at, in uh, Asia Minor seemed to go in and through Ephesus. Apparently, there was a guy who set fire to this temple, and he did it just because he wanted fame. And they made a law that if anybody spoke his name afterward, that they would be put to death. So it didn't play out as well as he had hoped. Then they built a third temple. And this is the one that was around when Jesus walked the earth. 
That lasted some 600 years, and it was finally destroyed by the Goths in uh, 268 AD. After that, uh, from what I can see, I've never been there, but Mark and other people have been there. I understand that it's just a swamp today where it once stood, but there are artifacts in the British Royal Museum of the Temple of Artemis or Diana there. Uh, in the reign of Tiberius in 337 AD, okay, here's 37 AD, Ephesus was greatly damaged by that earthquake we've talked about, but it was repaired by the uh, uh, emperor, and so we know that it was repaired under his reign, and therefore it probably was in good condition, and therefore the city of Ephesus was in good condition. By the time John received this revelation, which is why Jesus, when he says, thou art rich, that it's not necessarily a, um, if I have that right, that it's not necessarily a contradiction. Okay, uh, Paul, he went to, uh, the gospel was introduced to Ephesus, uh, the people at uh, Ephesus by Paul. And that was, he preached on his way from Corinth to Jerusalem, and we think it was about 54 AD. And in Acts 18, uh, chapter, verse nine, it says that he went into the synagogue. This was his usual custom. He always went to the synagogue first, and then he preached, and uh, then to his own uh, countrymen. And it doesn't appear that he preached publicly there. He was requ requested, stay longer with us. But he said, quote, by all means, I must be in Jerusalem at the approaching fast, probably the Passover. In Acts 18, 21, he promises to visit Ephesus again and then sailed from Ephesus to Jerusalem. Two persons that had been traveling with Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, appear to either have been left there at Ephesus or they returned shortly thereafter. And according to Acts 18, uh, 26, during the absence of Paul, a guy came to Ephesus by the name of Apollos. And Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he, he is mighty in scriptures, it says. And he received the baptism of John and he was preaching the doctrine of John. We don't know what that was, but it probably was repent, be baptized, prepare for the way of the Lord and <clears throat> look for the Messiah to come. And his teachings were getting embraced by the people of Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila sat, sat down with him and taught him the doctrines of the Christian faith. And he then having got those, uh, he continued to be a great service to the growth of the church. Paul returned about three years later and it was during that time that a church was founded and soon afterwards it became prominent. And as we've said of the seven churches that we're talking about here in Revelation, Ephesus was the largest, it's believed was the largest. Um, Mark made an important clarification last week when he proposed that when we read the church at Ephesus, in all probability, not a brick and mortar institution. And this will help get rid of the idea that there was a uh, bishop over all the churches. That this was, when it says the church, it was talking about the body of believers. And I tend to think that's probably a good uh, uh, assumption. And we learn from Acts that, that some of the main events that occurred in Ephesus through Paul was he baptized 12 persons who were followers of John the Baptist there. That happened, and Paul went into the synagogue there, and he spent three months with the Jews dialoguing about the Messiah. 
So we're not talking about hit and run conversations here. He spent three months there at Ephesus with the Jews and he didn't have much luck. And so he left the outreach to the Jews in the synagogue and uh, he went and he went into a schoolroom, so an uh, actual physical place owned by a man named Tyrannus. And there he continued to preach for about two years. So they were at an actual facility. Maybe this was the first church. Maybe this continued on to be the church. I don't know. But this is where Paul actually met in a schoolroom, and that's where he would teach. He remained there uh, until there was a tremendous upheaval that we read about in Acts chapter 19, verse 23 through 41. By this time, uh, the gospel had found a home in the hearts of the people of Ephesus. And what happened, according to Acts, is the people who worked earned their living by serving the temple of Diana, started to get fearful that they were going to lose their way of making money. The guys who made the little idols and things and sold them, uh, maybe on the roadside, would be left without a job. And so after this upheaval, it, it, Paul was uh, removed, and it isn't, it's thought he never returned again to Ephesus. Um, Acts 20 tells us he went to Macedonia, and then he stopped in Miletus, and there he asked for the elders of Ephesus to meet him. And in that discussion, he seems to tell them, I'm not going to see you ever again. So he doesn't uh, go back. Paul remained longer at Ephesus than any other place that we read about in the New Testament. Uh, and he seems to have deliberately set himself up in these cities. Uh, it would be like if Paul came to our world today, if he, w he would probably not go to Panguitch. Uh, he would probably uh, go to uh, L.A., New York, San Francisco, uh, Rome, uh, London. He would go to these places for a few reasons. One, in those places, there was a lot more freedom to speak openly about religion. Two, he was able to establish right in the heart of corruption and paganism uh, a church that would offset that. And if he could get it right there in the heart of it, he seemed to think uh, probably, of course, not probably, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, that this is where the gospel is gonna have the most effect in the long run out to the far reaching areas. Uh, and so he labored a long time and that's why maybe he stayed in Ephesus so long because it was the center of pagan worship with that temple there. He, uh, most of the places had significant temples erected to gods and where worship was celebrated of these false gods. In many cases, this was because uh, of the liberality of, liberality of those cities. And so there's just some conjecture that this is why Paul went to those places. And this may be why it is believed that the apostle John, then after Paul, went to Ephesus and made his home there until the end of his life. That's the tradition of so many uh, elders and writers of the gospel that after the church was founded by Paul, John came in. Little is said of Ephesus in the New Testament from the time Paul left it until the book of Revelation where it's brought up again now and Jesus addresses it. The tradition is Timothy was the first minister at Ephesus after Paul and he was succeeded by John the beloved who came and took over <clears throat> after that. And that would be the last place John lived. I gotta drink this really quickly. Okay, it said that he died in Ephesus, John, around 100 AD, the third year of Trajan. 
and uh, that he was uh, aged about 94 years, and all the subsequent history of the Church of Ephesus is gone. I'm unsure how to explain or justify this, but since Revelation is written to the seven churches, and the principal premise of the message from Jesus is, get ready, I'm coming quickly. This is the principal message that we see at the bookends of the book and even throughout the book. I can't help but believe that while Jesus came with judgment and reward to Jerusalem, that faithful believers in those churches in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, were raptured up at that time. He left a remnant, of course, for the gospel to continue forward, but it seems like those believers had to have a reason for the revelation to be given to them. And what would that be? He keeps warning them of his coming and everything else. The book of Revelation describes the end times in different senses, so could be that, whatever you think. All right, so under the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We covered that last week. Verse two, Jesus says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and that thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. Jesus commends them for this investigation and has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Uh, he first, I mentioned this last week, he compliments them, and then he will give a stab in a little while. Let's talk about these lines. We touched on the fact that Jesus says to all seven churches at the beginning, I know thy works. And I was really thinking about this uh, last week. Uh, Heidi mentioned um, about how maybe we could replace that just in our minds at least, with I know your heart. But um, this is a collective statement. It occurred to me. We do this when we are describing an institution as a whole. Uh, UC Santa Barbara is a party school. Or uh, those people over at campus are a bunch of whatever, radicals, stuff like this. We talk about, col we talk about collective identity and what their works are. And this is a collective statement. So I, I think that we can believe that Jesus is speaking to the collective. And Heidi's point last week about the heart is a collective doesn't have a heart that it's being judged on. A collective is being judged on what it does. So I made the mistake of, of saying, it's obvious we are judged of our works and I made it personal when in fact Jesus isn't making it personal. He's talking to the church there at Ephesus. And now I can understand why, because, so I actually think Jesus is speaking to the overall behaviors and actions of the body of believers at Ephesus that they have adopted as a whole. He's given this report to the pastor over that church. And we might see this as like Jesus sending a message to a small group here at campus. And he says, I know your works to the group at campus. And, and you've tried to do this and you've tried to do that and I have ought with you over this. And we could take that and I see how his reports are given to the seven divisions of his body. And in this light, we're easily to we can easily tease apart the difference between what Jesus is saying to a collective. This is my church. You guys belong to my church. You guys at Ephesus, you've been doing this, good job. You're not doing that, bad job. 
and it doesn't reflect upon how he's going to look at us. So he still looks at the individual heart. I made the mistake of teaching it as uh, the collective as if it were the individual, and that's a mistake because he's not judging individuals here. He's judging the group, okay? In other words, we make a mistake to use Jesus' words to these gatherings of believers uh, under the direction of the pastor as if it were assigned to our individual walk, okay? So this is a really important clarification because in reality, why God will know our works and our labors, he more importantly, this is what Heidi brought out, will know our hearts. That's what he looks at on the individual level. Uh, Proverbs 24, 12 gives us great insight in connection to this. Listen to what it says. If thou sayest, behold, we knew it not, doth he not ponder the heart, consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know it? And shall he not render every man according to his works? So there we see the heart tied to the actions of the individual. And First Chronicles 28, 9, this is what uh, is said to Solomon. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imagination of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee, but if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. And so we have a clarification there in scripture. When he's talking to us individually, he's looking at our heart. He's seen what we've been about. Our works are, are, are a side issue to that. And, and, but with the churches, the institutions here, the seven institutions, he's talking about their works as a group in the situation they're in. So quickly to reiterate, the context of Jesus saying to each church, I know thy works is corporate. It's corporate. And if he is stern or if he is congratulatory, this would be expected and not in conflict about his long suffering and gentleness when he looks at our heart. So he tells the manager of the body in Ephesus that he knows the works of the body there. This is the noun. The body of works as a whole, no matter what they were, mental, spiritual, physical, he knows their works. And then he adds, and thy labors. Now we read that in English, we might think that's, that's just a redundancy. I know your works and your labors, but this is the verb. These are the actual activities. So I know all you've been doing and I know actually what you've been doing. That, that, that term and thy labors means to cut or to beat. And it means things that will tire you out. So that is actually, labors is talking about the actual actions they were taking, what tires you out. The other is the noun works. So I know all you've been about and I know your actual labors that drain your energies might be a way to read that. And then he adds, and I could put, I know thy patience. Now this compliment makes a lot of sense when we look at the paganism that was in Ephesus, okay? Imagine yourself as a Christian in the worst part of San Francisco and trying to witness to the people who take part in the lifestyle there. And I'm not just talking about the homosexuals, I'm talking about all the stuff that goes on there. Just imagine being in the center of that and how much patience it would require. And this is what Ephesus was like. And so I think, that the patience Jesus commends them on is the body ex 
extending itself to sinful souls around them and their practices and, and their attempts to overcome the faith. And I think he's saying, I've seen your works. I know your labors and your patience. Twice he compliments the church in the short introduction to the short letter to them on their patience. Twice, you'll see it again. And this report from the Lord to them is of great value to people who are living among the fallen masses. I have seen your patience and with the lost and the misled and the sinful and how tiring it can be. So, you know, from Las Vegas or LA or whatever we're talking about, even here in Salt Lake City, patience is not only needed, it pleases the king when his body is involved in it. I know your works and your labors and your patience, he says. So it's really fascinating, but I think it lends greatly to the fact that it is this love and things of the spirit that will break down the walls. And so he commends them. I know, understand, I understand what you're going through and I I know your patience. Right after commending them for their patience, he commends them by saying, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Now, doesn't that seem to be, contradictory. I know your patience and how you can't bear them that are evil. It seems like it's a contradiction, uh, counterintuitive, but you've been so patient and you can't bear them that are evil. But I think that we see to be patient doesn't mean that you're condoning or approving or encouraging uh, bad behavior, but uh, so you're not giving it sympathies and you're not, uh, endorsing them, but you're being patient in bearing their sinful ways. And so you have both sides of the coin there and both are being mentioned. They seem like they're in opposition to each other, but I think they work in harmony. You can't bear those who are evil, but I recognize your patience in working with them. That's a really good way to see it. If, if we had a child who was hanging out with a kind of a raunchy group and, the, and, you, and you confront the child and the child says, I really can't stand it when they start being vulgar or whatever they do, uh, but I gotta let them know who Jesus is. You know, that would be encouraging for a, a parent to hear. And this is what I think he seems to be saying. We note that the, in the English, there's a colon here, not a comma, suggesting that the evil persons that were being referred to were doubtless those who were mentioned as those who were claiming that they were apostles. And, uh, and this probably refers to verse six, and the Nicolaitanes. I put them all together. Those who are doing the evil, those who they're being patient with, that they are trying to, they can't bear the evil that they're doing, and their, their uh, hatred of the deeds of the Nicolaitanes. To me, it's all one. I personally, others won't, but I think he's talking about them having to deal with these false apostles that have gone about, they can't stand their evil, they're laboring, they're toiling, they're being tired out, and yet they are patiently trying to overcome them, and they have discovered those apostles to be phonies. And that takes a lot of work too. Now I wanna point something out here which is really intriguing uh, to me, it may not be to you, but it, it shows the authorship is truly Hebrew. So we know this was not a Greek who composed this in all probability. And it comes down to a style of writing. This, these passages, I know thy works, and it ends with verse three. I wrote them on the board. They show us a style of writing that is sheer Hebrew. And as I was reading it and preparing, I saw it in there and 
said, uh, you know, and the Mormons make a big deal of it. It's called chiastic writing. And it's kind of like A, B, B, A. And, or you, you take the bookends and you take the center of the subject and it works out both ways to saying almost the same thing. And we have it here. I hope you guys can see the board uh, from there. But so just look at this, this, these two passages. And so we start off with works and that's Aragon. Air gone. And then we drop down to labor. I know thy works and thy labors. And then we drop down to patience. And from and then he says, and that you cannot bear. This is all introductory introductory stuff that is, uh, precedes the central theme, which is them which are evil. I'm just gonna put them which are evil, and you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So, uh, and how you can bear, them which, is e which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. So there's the central uh, theme of it, right? And then you look and he talks about works and he talks about labor, and he talks about patience, cannot bear. You give the central theme and then it backs out and he says, thou hast born. And then he says, patience again, this is the second time. And then he says, labored. And then he says, have not fainted. Now, I know it's a little bit of a stretch on that last one, but works and fainting and labor, it begins and ends with that. Labor is mentioned the second to last and the second from the beginning. Patience is mentioned uh, there. Cannot bear and born are mentioned next. And then we have the central theme. And that is, that is the way Hebrews write. And, um, and so it's a really interesting internal testament to the fact that this revelation well, if it's direct from Jesus' mouth, we know Jesus was a Jew because he's speaking in this chiastic manner. But if John was the writer, whoever was the writer, they had to be a Jew, in my opinion, just because of little insights like that. Okay. So central to the theme of what Jesus says is he commends them uh, that they have tried those who say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. And he commends them for this. And what is it required for them to do this? It's required works and labor and patience. They can't bear, but they've borne. It requires patience, labor, with the central theme being them which are evil. And couched in that is this message that he is He's proud of them for looking into what they are about and discovering if they are true or not. These, Jesus says, are evil. He says evil. But in, in the face of them, his church has exercised patience and patiently has worked to discover who they are. And we have a really beautiful picture there of what it takes to overcome. We have two references, the, the two bookends, that endorse work and labor and bearing and patience. And then we have the central theme is evil. 
How do we beat it? How do we overcome it? What is Jesus happy with? When we have, when we have two rights coming in and pressuring in on that wrong and collapsing it down. And this is his living word that's bringing this to us. And he is commending them. So if you ever start to beat yourself up for being a little critical of people who might call themselves apostles or something, uh, look here, that right here in the book of Revelation to the church at Ephesus, Jesus commends them for discovering that they were liars and that they were evil. Okay, these were a group or a handful of men, maybe women, but I'm sure it was all men, who claimed to be ones sent, uh, apostolos, those who were sent from God, presumably to deliver a message of truth from God. They say they are apostles and to the body there at Ephesus. So though not claiming to be apostles, though claiming to be apostles, they are not apostles. And Jesus says, essentially, you have done well in discovering that they are really liars. We have not told you how they, we're not told how they have feigned. We're not told what they said in their false apostleship, uh, but they were liars. Now, you have to decide, were these liars pretending to be actual apostles of Jesus Christ, uh, or were they claiming to have been elected to fulfill the role of an apostle who had died? Or maybe they were just simply claiming to be sent by Jesus. We don't know how they were apostles. If we're just gonna read it plainly in the text, an apostle was one thing here with Jesus. He says apostles here. So maybe they were claiming directly, we are apostles of Christ. Maybe. Uh, we don't know how they were claiming to be it, but we know that they did exist in the New Testament apostolic church. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. For such are false apostles. So he had a problem with them. Deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. It must have been uh, a problem. And no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as ministers of righteousness. That's how they transform themselves. I am a minister of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. So if we take these words from Paul here in Corinthians and take the liberty of assigning them to the fact that false apostles were in Ephesus at the time that John received the revelation from Christ, we can see that they were evil. Uh, they were promoting a false gospel of light because that's how Paul describes them in Corinthians to cross-reference it cross-reference this, and they were therefore very convincing and alluring. Uh, and uh, alluring things of light are really tough to com combat. And, and I get a sense that this is what was going on. And that's why he says, I know your labors, and I know your ergon, and I know your patience amidst this, because when you are confronted with a false claim of superiority that is apparently good and they're truly evil, that is an exhausting battle. It's exhausting. And so he uses uh, work and labor and tired and patient and, and worn out in the Greek in his description of what they're going through. It's pretty telling. The church in Ephesus patiently bore 
and labored and it was exhausted by their efforts and Jesus commends them for it. So, and I just wanna add a comment here, one that's very important to my view of the purpose and place of the New Testament in our lives today. Here we're reading about actual events taking place and the, there's false apostles alive and well in the apostolic church. That is happening then and there. And we have direct, a direct address by the Lord to John, to the church at Ephesus about them. I'm convinced that this record, while first and foremost is for those people then, the word is living. It's a living word. And so while we don't take it as the manual, we do take it as giving us insight and the, there's nothing new under the sun. We have the exact same thing around us today. In the case of false apostles, there's perhaps no better example happening in our day and age than in the, this very state where we uh, broadcast from. We have false apostles in this state. They are false, bottom line. And they're false apostles of light and of, of encouragement. They are not true apostles. And it takes a tremendous amount of labor to stand up against them because their presence is quite phenomenal. I mean, they, they, they have a presence that comes with them. If you are outside uh, the state of Utah and you haven't been here and you haven't witnessed what they are about, you come here and experience the pull and power that they have, but they're false apostles because they don't meet any of the qualifiers for an apostle, from what I can tell. And so this is a perfect, couldn't be better scripted, living example of the word playing out for us in our lives, right here. So here in Revelation, the church at Ephesus is being infiltrated by people who are claiming apostolic succession or claiming the power behind Jesus to be his apostle. And they're very persuasive. After commending them at Ephesus, Jesus is gonna stab them. We're gonna cover that next week. Stroke and stab. He's stroked them now. But after doing this, he's gonna return to his commendation. He does this at verse six and he's gonna say, but this you have. He, he, he strokes then he gives them a little stab, and then he comes back and he, and he adds, but this you have, here's something else that's good. Thou hast hated the deeds of the Nicolaitanes, which I also hate, the deeds of the Nicolaitanes. Now, I can't help but believe, as I said, that the hatred they had for the deeds of the Nicolaitanes is in direct reference to these apostles, these false apostles, them hating their deeds, being patiently, patiently bearing them, but hating them. And Jesus says, I hate them too, okay? Uh, in verse three, Jesus tells them that in regard to these false Nicolaitanes apostles that the church at Ephesus has borne, has patience, and for his name's sake has labored and has not fainted. And there are a few things, as I just mentioned, more laborious and tiring, relentless than what it requires to be patient in the confrontation of really well-established deceptions. And in my estimation, it's like resisting floodwaters or an invasion of insects. I mean, it's just so relentless, you know? If we are not careful, and I'm mentioning this in preparation for the stab he's going to give, if we're not careful in that warfare, we will become focused on on the warfare and lose the most important thing. 
And that's why the stab he's going to give them, he says, I have one thing uh, with you. And, and uh, so he's commended them for their labors and he's commended them for exposing the liars and for hating their deeds. But the Nicolaitanes, according to the church history, and many years later were a Gnostic sect, sect of hyper impure doctrines, really, really ugly doctrines. Tertullian and, and Augustine, Irenaeus, they all talked about the Nicolaitanes. And if they were connected to these false prophets, and I think they were, and they were there in Ephesus where paganism ran amok with all the sensual pleasures tied to the temple of Diana, uh, it seems to, that we could say that these false apostles whose deeds God, Jesus hated, and so did these people in Ephesus, they were probably, according to Tertullian, Irenaeus, and the others, they were probably all promoting multiple wives. This was one of the things they were promoting. Uh, adultery, rampant fornication uh, in relation to the uh, temple of Artemis, eating meats offered to idols, and a number of other pagan rituals. They were incorporating that as false apostles into uh, his church. And false apostles wouldn't naturally appeal to the things of the spirit. So we know that they were probably promoting things of the flesh, which were antinomian in nature and which were lawless. They probably promoted lawlessness. And I don't mean lawlessness in terms of the civil law of Moses. I'm talking about lawlessness in the terms of the moral law. They were probably big proponents of that, which thing Jesus says I hate. So in the face of all this, I think we're now prepared to understand the connection Jesus gives in verses four and five when he says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And we're gonna touch these passages uh, as they contain too much to cover right now with our time left. But the church had done well in defending and outing these false apostles of the Nicolaitanes, but along the way or in the process, they, they had laid aside, ignored, let atrophy their protos agape, their first love. And so perhaps the first love was lost among each other. Maybe it was lost between them and God. Uh, it was lost. We don't get specifics again because they were so preoccupied with the war against the false apostles. And so I have something against you now. Um, it happens so easily. It really does. We become obsessed. We become determined in our flesh to win and defend and beat the enemy. And, uh, and we leave our first love alone to go out into battle against the foes. And, you know, we see a commendation for the battle, but don't leave the first love. And we can interpret that first love in any way you want. We can interpret it as Jesus. We can interpret it as the first commandments being love God and love our neighbor as ourselves, our first love. He says, go back where you have fallen, repent change or else I'm going to remove my candle out of your, out of your his candle out of this, its place. So I think it means to love. And I think they probably had maybe infighting. Maybe they had some policing going on to make sure that other people weren't being swayed. Maybe they had mi mistreatment. We don't know. 
but go back, change your mind about this approach, repent. Remember therefore from when you are fallen and repent and do the first works. Well, the first works are faith. So get back to just, just faith now, who knows? Or else I will come remove thy candlestick out of his place. We'll talk more about this next week. Uh, not next week, the week after next. Next week, to give you a warning, I'm going to do the same presentation uh, in the afternoon that I'm doing in the morning. So um, it's not gonna be a verse by verse. It's not gonna be Revelation. It's not gonna be Acts. I'm going to give what I think is a gift. It's Christmas, so I'm gonna give a gift. That sounds kind of arrogant the way I'm saying that, but it's something that was given to me and uh, it's gonna cause you to think uh, but I think it's of real value, some of the most important value, and I can't think of a more appropriate time to give it. We're also gonna do communion, um, and we're also going to sing some Jesus-based Christmas songs before we go. So, uh, something we've also never done in recognition of any holiday, but um, we're going to this, this year. Questions, comments, insights. Those insights are good, you guys. Hmm. Welcome back, Ty. Thank you. How long are you here? Four weeks. Wow. Yeah. Good. I guess I had a question. Um, oh, wait. I'm sorry, sir. We have order here. Uh, it's just a textual question. Yeah. Um, is there anything else in Revelation that leads you to believe that it was written by a Jew? Because as you pointed out yourself, this is a quote from a Jew, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there anything in the narrative of John or I anywhere else? I just saw that as I was student, but as if we come upon them, oh, geez. I'm okay. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> you sure? I you, know. uh, you got it. You, you sure you're okay? I am okay. Ty, your words just pull people over. Uh, we'll, we'll look at that as we go on. Yeah. It's a good cool. question, though. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else? Diana has a uh, announcement about the choir, which is now has a new name. She's named it something. Well, and then we'll pray was, and get out of here. That was your idea, the name. Was it? I think so. In the, in the dictionary, if you recall, <laughs> um, choir is a division of angels. That's one of the definitions. So we therefore are a division of angels. And we've got more numbers in the morning than we do here in the afternoon. I do see one or two of you that have put your name on the list. And I'm really excited about this. And I'm really excited about singing praises to the Lord. I've looked up a lot of scripture in the Bible about singing and music in general. And it is mentioned hundreds of times. And we are being obedient when we sing to the Lord. It's commanded that we sing to him and it brings us joy and it brings him joy. And I hope that if God puts it on your heart that we can get a few people from the afternoon, from the meet. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this and I'm really looking forward to singing Christmas songs next week. First practice is when? Oh yes, first practice is on the 8th and it will be right after the morning meet or milk after the morning milk yes after the morning milk excellent so god bless all of you and i hope you have a merry christmas
Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we're, uh, we're moved by your spirit and we seek to know you through your spirit and to understand your ways and understand your word. We pray from our hearts that you will guide us, continue to guide us, and we'll recognize your hand in our lives and we'll seek you and open our hearts to receive you and you alone. And we pray to uh, be with us this week, week of chaos for some people and difficulty and stress for others, a time to rejoice. And we just pray you'll be with us in either case. Help those who are struggling. We just got word that a man on State Street was just hit by a car when Natalie helped him and had head injuries. His name's Norman. We pray that you will work in that situation and bless him and heal him up, elderly man. We uh, pray you'll bless our sister Heidi and uh, her continued uh, battle with cancer. And we just pray the doctor's hands and and modern medicine and your healing hand to just take care of this. We also pray for um, Phil Faber's wife and uh, who also has, is uh, in a battle with cancer and help her during her treatments and the sickness she's engaged in. We pray for Alicia, who's at, over at the hospital nearby. And uh, we pray that her infection that has invaded her body will leave and they will give her permission to go home. We pray for Daniel's heart to accept the Holy Spirit and Kathy for her lungs, Annette in a relapsing cancer and Lynn's back and Bob and Gwen to heal their marriage. And we pray you'll be with all of us this week. Give us uh, protection and help us to remember the things you want us to know. We love you, Lord, and we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Not unto your own.